It's good to see you. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. I think appropriate for us to go to the Lord in prayer before we get into the Word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, your Word is good, and it's a big deal that we can get into it. And I just ask that you would change us and make us like Christ. And may we be able to glorify Him this morning as we study your Word. And Lord, I need help. I need help to get through this, not just to get through it, but to get through it with joy. And ask you would keep me intact and empower me by your spirit to encourage my brothers and sisters. In Christ's name, amen. As an infant, Vanitha Reisner contracted polio long after it was virtually eradicated. She was misdiagnosed, and the treatment she received paralyzed her. Before age 13, she had undergone 21 surgeries. Eventually, she learned to walk, but because of her issues, obviously she looked different than other people, she was bullied at school. Life goes on for her, and later on in life, she uh, gets married and has a daughter. And then she has three miscarriages. Finally, she has a child. The child is two months old, and then after uh, two months, had some heart issues, uh, a doctor said, hey, we can go off the heart medicine, and the child died at two months. She eventually has another daughter, so now she has two children, and then she's dealing with great pain from this post-polio syndrome where she can barely lift things. And in the midst of all this, her husband leaves her, divorces her, moves out of state, and leaves her with two children. Now, she, she details her suffering in a book called The Scars That Have Shaped Me. It's, it's not that this suffering has shaped her, but it's that Jesus had shaped her in her suffering. Now, I know a variety of you have had a lot of trials and suffering, and perhaps you would say the scars have shaped you, or Jesus has shaped you in your suffering. The question I ask of you is this. Who is this Jesus who is shaping you in your suffering? Who is Jesus? Who is he who is shaping you in your suffering? And what I want to do, I want us to explore from the Word of God who Jesus is and value him so that he shapes our minds and our hearts and our actions. But what I find that we do sometimes is that we don't have a big picture of Jesus. We don't have the whole Jesus. We, let me just put you straight. Sometimes we take the first coming of Jesus and we focus completely on that is who he is while ignoring the second coming of Jesus. But if we are going to let the true Jesus shape us in our suffering, we need to pay attention to him in his first coming and in his second coming. Okay, so let's do this. You ready? In his first coming, he comes as the suffering servant who died on the cross for your sin. He's the suffering servant who can sympathize with you in your weakness. In his second coming, he's coming as the king of glory. He's coming to, to pour out his wrath on his enemies. He's coming to deliver you from your problems completely. 
So we have two comings of Christ, and we think about his first coming. He can sympathize with you in your suffering, and in his second coming, he's going to free you completely from your suffering. Who is this Jesus who is shaping you in your suffering? Well, he's the one who's the suffering servant who can sympathize with you. And he's also the warrior king who will completely free you. And it is this Christ we want to look at today so that we can find our scars are shaping us and our scars through Christ are healing us. Let's go ahead and turn back to the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation. We're going through Revelation. On Mother's Day, it's great that we can talk about Armageddon. It's awesome. And we find ourselves in Revelation 19. It is what has come up. Revelation 19. So let's go ahead and stand. You stand, I sit. Uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. I'm going to read it to you. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in the presence, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You may be seated. Last week we looked at Revelation 19, 1 through 10. We saw much rejoicing in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The focus was on the vindication of God's people who will eat with him and worship him forever in heaven. Now the focus will be on judgment and destruction of God's enemies. For Christ not only comes for vindication, but Christ also comes for judgment. And you can think about this passage broken down into three parts. I'll put it up for you. So you can follow along. Look at this. We have the return of the king, the conquest of the king, and the victory of the king. And what we're asking is, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that will sympathize you with you in your weakness, first coming? And who is this Jesus who will free you from your suffering, second coming? Let's go ahead and jump in. 
Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Heaven is opened, and Jesus comes down as a victorious warrior on a white horse. He's not coming in a manger. He is not riding on a donkey. But this time he's coming on a war horse. And he's called Faithful and True as he will be faithful to carry out his mission, and he will do so in truth. He will not do, have an unjust war, but he will judge righteously, and he will make war. Now, I'm wondering, does your understanding of Jesus include a warring Christ, making war against his enemies? Does your understanding of Christ do that? Did you know that these images of Christ, who may disturb you, have caused comfort for Christians throughout the ages? Yes, a warring Christ has brought comfort to Christians throughout the ages. Because the coming of God's wrath means deliverance and vindication for his people. In fact, I believe the argument can be made that when Christians are being persecuted, they can respond with nonviolence because Christ will come back in judgment. Now, I'm going to get technical here for a moment, and I hope you can stick with me. I'm going to get technical, and I'm going to explain it along the way, okay? One theologian describes the suffering of his Croatian people at the hands of aggressive Serbians. They were to respond with nonviolent grace as they thought about the coming judgment. This is what the theologian says. The presupposition of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. As we're being persecuted, we can respond with nonviolence because we know that Christ has come back to judge. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians of the West. Because many will argue we should be nonviolent because God is non-coercive love. Right? God is love. We'll respond with love, and that will motivate our nonviolence. He continues, to his objectors, he proposes that they imagine themselves lecturing on this thesis. We should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love to a people living in a war zone whose villages have been plundered and burned, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, and whose fathers and brothers have been murdered. The theologian continues, Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. When we are being persecuted as believers throughout the world, 
we can respond with nonviolence. Not because God just lets stuff slide. It's because we know that Christ is coming back to judge. And as individuals in here who may have been wronged by someone really bad in your past, maybe someone abused you, yes, you can love them. Yes, you do not have to retaliate. Yes, you can pray for their salvation. But what motivates you in loving sometimes your enemies is what Christ did. It's because there will come a day of judgment. Christ is not going to just let stuff slide. And we are told from the Bible here that he's coming to judge and make war. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. These flaming eyes of fire. What does that mean? Well, it means he sees the heart and the mind of every human being. And, and the many diadems indicate his crown of authority. Once again, Jesus is not coming this time around as the humble king. This time around, he's coming as the warrior king. Yet we won't know all about Christ when he comes, as it says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I love it. We're going to spend forever exploring the mysteries of God and still not know all the depth of his character. Verse 13, keep going. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He's got blood on his robe. Perhaps that's the blood he shed on the cross for his people. But in the context, the blood is likely the blood of all his enemies who have been conquered and will be conquered by Jesus Christ. For he is the Word of God, meaning that he is not just the final revelation from God, but he is God himself who brings final judgment. But hey, Christ isn't alone. Look who's following him. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. <laughs> who are these armies of heaven? Well, it's you. If you're going to a believer in Christ, you're part of that army. Probably angels as well. You and I will be in the army and we'll be arrayed in fine linen, white and pure through the finished work of Christ. And we'll be riding in victory, what it says, on white war horses as well. I do not know how to ride a horse, but I will one day. And we will look strong and mighty in Christ. But what I love about this is that even though we look awesome, we will not fight. Isn't that great? We're coming here to fight. We don't fight at all. Christ will be the one who wars. We'll see that in a bit. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's going to conquer, as from his mouth comes a sharp sword to destroy the nations and rule over them with a rod of iron. Perhaps just a word from Christ comes forth and the nations just fall over. 
His wrath is depicted here as he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Think about grapes being stomped in a winepress so the Lord will stomp out his enemies. And there's no mistaken who he is. It is written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. The battle is the Lord's and he will conquer. It's his battle, not ours. He'll take care of it, not us. And I would say that even now, as we follow Jesus, the battle is the Lord's. We engage in spiritual warfare, of course. We have a lot of problems that we cling to the Lord, but the battle is the Lord's. It belongs to him. But get this. One day, when we're with Christ, the victory will be swift and final. But right now, when we engage in these battles, there is often, ready, a delay in victory. And one of the most discouraging things that you can face in the Christian life is being in a battle, having some struggles, having some issues, and experiencing the delay. Is there anyone in here right now who is facing a delay? It's Mother's Day. I think about moms, dads, and kids. One of the most painful things uh, often can be <laughs> raising children. Thinking about delays, thinking about maybe many people trying to get pregnant, unable, delay. Or you have children and they have a variety of issues. Sometimes children have physical issues, emotional issues, um, delay in their sanctification and your sanctification, a lot of problems. And for those of you who've entered the world of adoption and foster care, you will enter a world of struggle and delay like you've never seen. You'll find yourself praying for movement, for progress, for healing, for attachment, for reconciliation, for protection, for peace, for finances and stability. It's like the delays are heightened and make you feel hopeless. So for those of you who are involved with children, raising children, trying to have children, know this. It's all the Lord's. It's all the Lord's. The battle belongs to the Lord. And if you are struggling with the delay right now for whatever reason, just know, hey, God's called you into this. God's in charge of this. One day the victory will be complete. But right now during the delay, cling to him. Cling to him. All right, so let's look at the conquest of the king. And the king's coming back. Look what he's going to do. Look at the complete destruction and the invitation of feast. This gets kind of gross, so get ready. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. 
An angel calls to the birds to come gather for the great supper of God and to eat flesh. And as God's enemies gather for a battle, so the birds gather for a feast. You see that? There's not going to be this proper burial for God's enemies as the birds will eat the flesh of all, both small and great. Earlier in chapter 19, we talk about the supper of the Lamb where we, we are feasting, believers are feasting with Jesus, but now it's the supper of the wicked and they are the food. A question one has posed is, will you be the eater or the eaten? If you're the eater, you're trusting Christ to forgive you, to give you salvation, to rescue you. You'll participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. You'll be the eater. But not so those who reject Christ. They will be the eaten, and they will face eternal separation from God forever. Christ is coming back. Judgment is real. There will be a conquest. There is safety in Christ. There is destruction apart from him. And now we finish up with the victory of the king. This is the time we've always longed for. It will finally come in the destruction of the enemy and the victory. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. Back in chapter 16, as the sixth bowl was poured out, it showed the king stirred by evil assembling for the battle of Armageddon to make war on the Lamb. The battle of Armageddon seems to last one second. We think about this long, lengthy, drawn-out battle. It looks like it lasts for one second. Verse 20. And the beast was captured, and went that the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. <laughs> the battle is literally over before it even begins as Christ conquers quickly. The beast here, we've seen before, is the Antichrist, along with the false prophet, who is the sidekick of the Antichrist. They are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They are tossed alive into hell while the rest were slain by the sword of Jesus as all the birds were gorging on their flesh. So the king returns, destroys the enemy, and is victorious. And that's the story. That there is coming a day of vindication for God's people and judgment on his enemies. It is going to happen. For those in Christ will have vindication. Those outside of Christ will face judgment. But here's the deal. How do we hold on in the midst of the delay? That's what this whole book is about. Struggling churches, the seven, remember? The seven struggling churches trying to hold on to following Christ in the midst of suffering, persecution, false teaching, sexual morality, eating food sacrificed to idols, losing their, you know, their faith in Christ. And Christ is saying, hold on. Yes, you're experiencing a delay, but it's all part of the plan. 
and I'm going to come back and rescue you and judge your enemies. But right now, you live in the delay. Hold on. And you wonder, well, how do I hold on in the midst of the delay? I'm reading this book right now. It's really good. It's called When Your 20s Are Darker Than You Expected. Anybody right now in their 20s, and it's, and it's pretty dark. Anybody in their 20s right now, and you've been surprised how dark it's been. Because when you're a teenager, you have these dreams, you have these visions. If you can just get through college, 20s are going to be awesome. And you get there, and there are some, some dark times. Just to encourage you, your 30s don't get any better. Nor the 40s. I'm holding out for the 50s. But you know, each decade you can have some dark, some dark times, right? So in this book, the author lists five feelings, I'm just curious, five feelings that overwhelm and disillusion wandering young saints of all ages. So I want to see if this matches with any of you right now. Number one, disappointment. It's where you say, I thought life would be better. Number two, despondency. My ability to feel joy is just broken. Anybody? My ability to feel joy is just broken. Number three, despair. Nothing I do matters. Number four is doubt. Your faith is starting to turn from I believe to I once believed. And number five, desolation. What am I doing? I don't have a place in this world. No, nowhere feels like home. What, what am I doing? So you have this delay, right? Things are dark. You're ready to be with Christ, but you have this delay, and it's hard, and it's painful. So what do you do? Well, you have to continually, continually, the sermon's not going to fix you, by the way, because you have to continually look to Christ and say, tell me again who he is, and you've got to remind yourself, every day, tell me again about Jesus. Okay, you ready? First coming, suffering servant. He can identify with you in your weakness. He knows what you're going through in your temptations because he was tempted as well, and yet without sin, he can sympathize with you. But don't stop there at the suffering servant because you may say, well, what good are you because I'm going to be dealing with this for eternity. No, no, no. King of glory, fierce warrior. There will become a time of freedom. You're suffering your darkness has an end date. It is on a timetable that will come to a conclusion. It will. It will not last forever. Guarantee it. Christ is coming back. Take the whole Christ, the suffering servant, the fierce warrior, and come to him completely and find him sympathizing with you and also seeing that there is an end date in him. 
This past week, I, I read something that was very discouraging, um, but then it became encouraging. <laughs> you ever read stuff like that? Like, oh, that's the worst. That's really good. Anybody in your life, you feel like you're on your main road, right? And then you'd like, something bad happens, and you feel like it's a detour, right? You're like, oh, I'm on this detour. Now, if I can just get back to the main road I was on, things will be great. So here's the discouraging thing I read this week. What happens when the detour becomes the new road? <laughs> no! I don't want to hear that. Like, I want to get back to where I was. What happens when the detour you thought just that becomes the, the new road? It's in times like that you go, oh, okay, God. You know what you're doing. You're in control. You control the detour. And if that's the new road, I'm going to walk on the new road. And I'm going to let you do whatever you need to do to heal me and my scars. You're with me on that new road. Maybe it's not a detour anymore. It's the new road. And so the flip side of the, the five feelings of despair we talked about earlier, I think on the new road, as you're focusing on Christ, you may have or you can think about having five new feelings, emotions, thoughts. And I share these five with you. They're the opposite of the five I just shared about darkness. And they go kind of like this. Number one, diligence. Let me encourage you to be diligent in your grief. If any of you are mourning right now and you don't think it's a very Christian thing to mourn or lament, be diligent in your grief. If the detour is challenging and you've experienced some loss, be diligent in your grief. But also be diligent to move on and to move forward on this new road. And not just diligence, but hey, this is going to be the hardest one for you when you're suffering is dreams. Number two, dreams. That's the hardest one. Take some risk and do what God is calling you to do. Sometimes you get off your main road and you go on the detour and that's the new road. You're like, I'm done dreaming because every time I dream, God just shoots me down. And there we go, another detour. Don't play that game. Keep dreaming. Number three, dissatisfaction. Let your dissatisfaction with the world grow as you grow closer to Christ. As you look toward your home, start to be dissatisfied with the things that the world offered. You were on your road and you thought everything was awesome and now you're on this new road. You're like, you know what? I'm dissatisfied with the worldly things I was pursuing and I'm going to draw closer and closer to Christ. And that brings you to four, dependence, dependence. Now that you're learning about dependence on God for love, for affirmation, and he'll never leave you. And the last one is devotion. I get this. I'm not talking about your devotion to God. I'm telling you that God is devoted to you. If you are in Christ, God is devoted to Christ, and you in Christ. God is devoted to you. Things may be dark. They may be hard. 
Christ sympathizes. There is an end date, and in the midst of it, God is devoted to you and your suffering as you wait for the return of Christ. So let me encourage you this week. I know this sermon's not going to fix everything, but start to look to Christ. Let him use these scars. Let him use this detour that's a new road to start to shape you and to form you and to heal you until you're with them for good one day in glory. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, you are good, and your love endures forever. In Christ, you are coming back, and you will bring judgment. And Lord, may we not be those people who just play down judgment. May be those who find safety in Christ and tell others about the salvation we have in Christ and the joy we have in Christ. And I pray for my brothers and sisters now who may be going through a dark time. Life for them is darker than they expected. They were on the road they were hoping to be on for good, and it has taken a massive detour that is the new road. Let them know that you're in charge, that you're in control, you know what you're doing. You've not left them or forsaken them. And I ask, Lord, that they will continue to dream about what you're calling them to do. Now if they need to be diligent in their grief, may they be diligent in their grief. May they grow in their dissatisfaction for the world and draw near to you and find in you hope, affirmation, love as their dependence grows. And let them know that you are devoted to them. They are in Christ, and you are devoted to Christ, and so you are devoted to them. And may they find hope in you and encouragement from you until they see you in glory face to face. In Christ's name, amen.